HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market. A New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway, and uh, it's getting into almost the holiday season. Um, and of course, we just had a number of uh, holidays, um, particularly Yom Kippur in the Jewish traditions, and we'll see more of them uh, to come. So today, I'm really excited. We're talking with an author who has just written a book called The Jewish Soul Food from Minz to Marrakesh. It is Jana Gur. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and you are you're sort of an expert. Um, you've been writing about Israeli cuisine for forever. It seems <laughs> you've written the magazine, um, the leading Israeli food and wine magazine, um, and also the new Israeli cookbook, mm-hmm. the book of the new book Israeli of- food. It's already not so new. So the right. new is in Israeli food. The book is, I think, seven years old by now. Well, congratulations in this new book. Thank you. Um, it's so exciting and beautiful looking. Thank you, um, Thank you very much. Um, if you don't mind, I kind of wanted to read a little bit from the introduction because it was fascinating stories you captured here. Um, but you write, Today, more and more Israelis are aware of the importance of preserving their family cooking heritages. Self-published family cookbooks have become very common, and it is touching to see how much love and longing are invested in these modest publications. Still, the big question looms. Can these cuisines, which are products of the unique circumstances of Jewish life in places like Iraq, Turkey, Yemen, Morocco, or Poland, really survive in their new home? Or to put it in simpler words, who will cook this food in the next generation and who will eat it? Um... I just thought that was a really interesting way um, that this book sort of diverges from your last cookbook, mm-hmm. um, talking about the new exciting uh, trends um, in Israeli food that you spoke of in that book. And here we sort of go back to um, a lot of the traditions that uh, from the Jewish tri- diaspora, mm-hmm. from other countries and other influences, and how they've forged their own unique cuisines. Mm-hmm. So um, 
yeah, tell me a little bit about the premise for this book and how you got inspired to write it. Um, I, I think the quote you just, you just mentioned is a very good place to start. Mm-hmm. And you're right. In, in the book of New Israeli food, I was celebrating our brave new right. food culture, but our brave new culture actually thrives on um, the heritage of Jewish cuisines. And the Israeli food is basically a fusion of Middle Eastern cooking, that is, you know, our local cooking, and of course, cooking of Jewish immigrants that, that came from so many places. And what we basically cook, it's not yet a cuisine, is a mixture of all these influences. However, Jewish cuisines per se, I mean, Jewish cuisine that developed over thousands of years um, in the diaspora, all over the world, are, in my opinion, not just in my opinion, um, endangered species are on the verge of extinction simply because they are, represent cultures and uh, lifestyles that do not exist anymore in their original provenance. I mean, none, no Jews or almost no Jews live anymore in places like Iraq, uh, Persia, um, Yemen, Morocco, Hungary. And these are places where there's ancient Jewish cu- cuisine. Absolutely. Yeah. Iraqi, for example, Iraqi Jewish cuisine goes back over 2,000 years old. It is mm-hmm. really probably the most ancient Iraqi cuisine in general, mm-hmm. not just, you know, not just Jewish Iraqi cuisine. And um, Israel today, well, in a very kind of lucky um, circumstances, Israel today still has all of these cuisines simultaneously right. because there are enough first-generation immigrants who cook these foods and who feed other people with these amazing dishes. But we do not really know, or we can safely assume it won't long for, yeah. for, for a lot of time because this is grandmother-style of cooking because Israel is just too small and too dense and too... And changing. And changing, precisely. So... It's, it's safe to assume that most of these dishes will be not actually lost, but won't be part of culinary mainstream, so to speak. However, some of them are in Israel. Some of them already become a part of our culinary um, repertoire. And the premise of my book was actually to bring these dishes, mm. uh, what we call the greatest hits of our grandmothers from all over the Jewish diaspora, to primarily North American reader, Jewish or non-Jewish, it doesn't really matter, I said, listen, these are amazing dishes. Why not? Because the only way to really preserve a cuisine is to cook it and find as many people as possible who want like to it. eat it. Yeah. Because otherwise it just... It just remains folklore, you know, food history. This is not really living cuisine. And looking through this, I can kind of see why these recipes have been so treasured and Mm -hmm. and replicated by these grandmothers. I love how you write that it wasn't sort of you who chose them, but these dishes were sort of a natural selection of folks who just adored them. I think the word that I would give myself, title I would give myself, and I'm proud to give myself, would be a curator. Mm-hmm. really, because I did have all that wealth of recipes in my disposal. Uh, and all I had to do is, you know, to choose and maybe to tweak them a little bit so they will be more um, suitable for uh, international audience. But basically, you're absolutely right. It's not me who chose mm-hmm. them. And I think that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, you know, seal of approval. It's not just my crazy taste. These are dishes that people picked up, singled out and adopted because of their um, deliciousness and because of their practicality and relevance to 
our modern lifestyle. They're survivors. Exactly. Um, and what would you say, um, is that the meaning of the soul food in your invoking the word soul food? Is it about memory? Is it nostalgia? Is it about... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good question. I've been asked that several times. And every time I answer it, I kind of uh, get more and more insights. Because mm-hmm. first of all, soul food is, it's a little bit tongue in the cheek. Because soul food is primarily uh, associated with... The American uh, South. Exactly. However, the same year my book came out, about half a year before my book, there was another book called Jewish In Search of Jewish Soul Food, a ah. book about the knish, one of the iconic... Uh, Jewish Ashkenazi dishes. I, I had and said, yeah, right. I had authors on the show who Laura, wrote. Laura, ja- yeah. oh, Japanese soul f- cooking. Okay, <laughs> this was actually this okay. was Jewish soul soul Got food. It. So okay. it, it was called, I think, Knish mm. in search of Jewish soul food. So this term already becomes sort of I'm not sure pervasive, but it does exist. Um, but this book. Let's put it this way: certain dishes for certain people would be their soul mm. food. Yeah, uh, and it happens every time people leave through the book and say, oh, "This is what my grandmother used to make." Oh, I still remember that one. For others, these same dishes would be kind of exotic or new. So one solves. For me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one, it's you know, like somebody's rich. It's it's it really depends on who's looking at the book, but someone you you can be sure that every one of these dishes makes someone cry. It's I mean, an emotional Yes, but meaning, other yeah. people can say, okay, maybe I didn't grow up um, eating this kind of food, but it sounds and looks tempting, so why not try it? Mm-hmm. And maybe for my children, it will become their soul food. That's fabulous. Mm-hmm. I love that you preserve these, and, and um, it seems like you really took from a lot of different chefs and tried to choose the versions, because mm-hmm. there's so many different ways to oh, make yes. a lot of these recipes. Yeah. I loved reading about how your chopped liver recipe, um, you're inspired by one version that had more onions to mm-hmm. liver yeah. um, for that wonderful texture. Um, and the flavor, so. and flavor, because actually fried onions, fried onions in general are like the basis, the what makes the flavor in Ashkenazi cooking, not just in the, not just in the chopped liver, uh, but in chopped liver, definitely the sweet kind of luscious taste of very very slowly fried onions is what gives, in my opinion, um, chopped liver its charm. By the way, interesting uh, anecdote: um, in the fifties, uh, you know, last century in mm-hmm. Israel, it was. Um, period known as the age of austerity. It was very, very harsh oh. economic situation. Shortly yeah. after the state of Israel was um, was founded, there was shortage on very many, you know, basic products. And there were a lot of substitutes that were devised by, you know, home cooks. Mm-hmm. And one of them was a fake chopped liver. Oh. And it was made with eggplants or, you know, famously versatile and you can basically make anything you like with them. But what made the flavor were the fried onions. Wow. So you, once you add fried onions, you kind of have this. And that it was so good that up to this very day in, in, in a deli, you can buy a chopped fake liver salad made with eggplants and fried oh onions. Oh my goodness. That sounds <laughs> yeah, great. It and it's funny because like the term chopped liver and, and just using awful in general is associated with austerity as well. Yeah. But um, this is going deeper. <laughs> yeah, but austerity um, could be relative, you know. Right, right. Um, so you live in Tel Aviv mm-hmm. currently, um, and you know there's so much going on right now in Israel. I just wanted to ask how how is it how is it living there right now? You mean food wise or generally? <laughs> um, the culture. I mean the you know 
I, I wanted to really ask you about um, all the turmoil in this era in Israel as a whole and, and whether you think, you know, what you think, because you've been living there since 1974. Right. Um, where you think this might take the culture and the cuisine? Um, you mean in political turmoil? Yes. That's, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tough one. Ah. Um, political turmoil, uh, unfortunately, is part of our life. Okay. And... Um, I know that lately things are even more kind of messy than they used to be in the few in the last years but um, culturally speaking and culinary speaking there is so much going on um, I sometimes wonder whether these two things have You know have anything to do with each other you know people not taking anything for granted the sense of urgency the need you know to to enjoy life to create things because the future is not always very uh, certain right so it probably adds the edge you know I hear many Israelis who leave don't live in Israel anymore live some you know very quiet place like Canada uh-huh. or Denmark and so everything is just fine but, but we're a bit bored yeah. <laughs> we're uh-huh. used to action but well this is not the kind of action we're looking for but uh, Tel Aviv especially is 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 sizzling right with um, with exciting cuisine with art with fashion with culture and even during you know the war the last summer and was terrible for all of us you know, people went out they went to restaurants and mm-hmm. even though there were sirens sometimes in the middle um, Israelis have this really lustful life they do and part of it is 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 food very That's big part of it yeah yeah I loved reading about how you began writing the magazine and I'm, I'm sorry what was it called again the cook the culinary magazine it's called Alashulhan in Hebrew which means okay. on the table all right um, you started writing it at a time that it just sort of uh, intersected with this With this renaissance mm-hmm. of, of culinary interest, and then there's all of a sudden new cheese uh, producers mm-hmm. and um, all sorts of specialty grocers, olive oils and mm-hmm. so forth at yeah. the same time. So and do you see that continuing to flourish? Oh, yes okay. yes it, 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 only oh, we, getting stronger absolutely it mm-hmm. started it did start it in you know early 90s, late 80s. It coincided with our founding of the magazine, which is really we were. really very lucky and very privileged to be able to be part of it and to document it and encourage it and it was really fun and it does it does go on uh, I think now we're witnessing the second generation you know oh, the millennials yeah, who grew up who, with the great exactly, food exactly yeah. they grew up with the great food they're very relaxed about it they don't take it you know they're not into you know very fancy gourmet stuff but they know their wine they know their bread they know where to shop they go out Uh, a lot and it would go out to places like you know like Roberta's mm-hmm. like the one we're just next to um, kind of market restaurants um, places that don't take themselves too seriously but still serve really oh. good food and I think geoshetting food is part of it I mean we do see a lot of uh, for example there is a little cute restaurant in Tel Aviv That uh, serves Iraqi kuba soup the dumpling the famous dumpling soup but mm-hmm. also Swedish meatballs uh-huh. because the owner uh, grew up in Sweden 
Um, he's an Israeli who, I think, moved when he was a kid with his family and then came back. And he learned how to make kube from his Iraqi grandmother. But he also has some Swedish uh, meatballs in his repertoire. So it's kind of this mishmash. Delicious. That sounds yeah, great. Yeah, it it sounds, like, sounds like um, it's reached a sort of wizened place or more... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, by the way, the recipe for the beet kuba soup in my book is, awesome. is the one from from this guy. He's really awesome. Oh, so cool. Um, I want to talk about lots more um, about the recipes, mm-hmm. but we're going to first quick cut to a little commercial interlude and be right back. Electric Latin Soul. <laughs> You are listening to ELS by Renee Lopez. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. We're back chatting more with author Jana Gur of Jewish Soul Food from Minsk to Marrakesh. Um, and there are more than 100 unforgettable dishes updated for today's kitchen, which is the subtitle um, in this book. Um, flipping through it, I love how you have um, a little note above each recipe about the provenance mm-hmm. of that of that recipe. And just, you know, even flipping through some section like even the desserts, um, mm-hmm. there's such interesting smorgasbord there's a uh, turkish there's sephardic uh egyptian persian moroccan um what else there was bulgarian um there was an american one which was yeah. the barbecued beef brisket mm-hmm. which is yeah. really fun um so tell me a little bit about um the main differences between because you know we're in new york so we know the ashkenazi mm-hmm. jewish foods traditions um, and I see a lot of Sephardic foods. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the main differences between those two? Wow, these are, first of all, even Sephardic food is like an umbrella definition. There are so many within, you know, Sephardic sure, world, yeah. so many differences. Um, Ashkenazi food is universally recognized as Jewish food. I mean, people, when they say Jewish food, even in Israel, if there is a restaurant that calls itself a Jewish restaurant, it would serve Ashkenazi food. Okay. If it serves Jewish Moroccan food, it would call itself Moroccan restaurant. So it's kind of funny. Uh-huh. But um, uh, in this book, there is, I think, about 15% uh, Ashkenazi um, recipes. And the rest is the rest. I yeah. don't even like to use the word Sephardi because, for example, Iraqi cuisine, which I think is most probably 
the most represented cuisine in this book simply because it's so amazing. It's not properly Sephardi because Sephardi means in Hebrew Spain and Sephardi cooking is cooking of descendants of Spanish Jews who mainly moved to um, Turkey, Morocco. Bulgaria, parts of Morocco. Okay. The Spanish, there is Spanish Morocco, but there is also other parts of Morocco that are not, I mean, their cooking is not Sephardi. And it is indeed different. So uh, in Yemenite cooking, for example, that is, mm -hmm. again, uh, very unique, especially their breads and their baked products. I love how you have this bread, um, the Yemenite bread that is yeah. a very ancient Yeah, which one? Cuisine. There are two, um, the lachuch, the, 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 the pan-fried bread. Yes, that yeah, one. That's really cool. That's yeah. called lachuch. It's, uh, it's a cross between a pancake I just missed it yeah, it's I right here it. yeah um, it's um, it's actually made in a pan it's a flat bread but it's yeast uh, pan um, British people say it's a little bit like a crumpet it does look yeah. like that it does look like a crumpet it's delicious as a wrap mm -hmm. and you can just dip um, you like know, a clap or something. Yeah, it's yeah. really it's really good and it's really easy to make. This is, by the way, was one of my uh, criteria when I was picking the recipes. Things that people will actually make that are not overly complicated or do not involve, you know, very fancy uh, ingredients or equipment. And this is a really good example because it's just all you need is a is a pan mm -hmm. and, and some dough and yeast and water and. Here we go. And I love that you mentioned the, the Iraqi um, Jewish cooking mm -hmm. um, is well represented here. And it's something that I don't think I would get to try or, or see too yeah. often. And this sweet and sour fish casserole with eggplant and tomatoes looks yeah. absolutely amazing. Yeah, this is one of my favorites and very easy to make. Interestingly, uh, what I like, another thing I like about Iraqi cuisine, uh, beside the fact that it has so many delicious dishes, is that this is one of the more distinctive Jewish cuisine because mm -hmm. in many cases, um, Jewish cuisine was very similar to that of their non-Jewish neighbors. For example, Moroccan cuisine is not that, Moroccan Jewish cuisine is not that different from non-Jewish okay. cuisine. That's, there are a lot of similarities, I obviously. The, the tagine with the exactly, uh, chicken. Exactly, exactly. Okay. But Iraqi Jewish cuisine, probably because it's so mm. Asian and because it had very interesting destiny, is quite different from the Interesting. Yeah, even the flavor profile. Um, Jewish Iraqi cuisine is kind of sweet and sour, like the one, the dish right. you mentioned, uh, and others uh, that have a similar flavor profile, as opposed to non-Jewish, to Muslim Iraqi cuisine that is more kind of savory, spicy. Wow. So it is different. So it's really its own thing. Yeah, it's outside of yeah, both because Iraqi they've been they've been Jewish. around for mm -hmm. over two thousand years. And for example, if you look at the cover, yes, recipe, I was about to talk yeah. about this, and uh, this, I hear it's like the rock star of Israeli. It is the rock yeah. star of Israel. It's already in existence in New York for the last decade, thanks to Taim. You know, oh, yeah, they, cool. the yeah, the food right. stall that sells falafel mm -hmm. and sabich. It's called sabich. Sabich is very popular street food in Israel. And it's based on uh, what Jewish Iraqi eat on Shabbat breakfast. Because, uh, you know, that on Saturday you're not supposed to do any work or cook. Mm -hmm. So all Shabbat dishes, all uh, Saturday dishes are made in advance or cooked very slowly. And this is basically kind of a spread, you know, morning brunch spread right. yeah. that uh, consists of uh, fried eggplants, hard-boiled eggs, um Amba, which is a kind of unique uh, uh, condiment-based, 
It's not exactly a jam. It's chutney. more like a relish based on on mango. Right. Which again, a mango. Mango sauce. A little spicy mango sauce. Exactly. Yeah. And it comes from... Uh, the reason that Amba is part of Jewish Iraqi cuisine because Jew, uh, Iraqi Jews has a lot of connections with Indian Jews, mm-hmm. and it's only fine. It's in, like a chutney. In, yeah, it's a li- well. We we recommend not using chutney, but um, uh, pickles because they are like Indian pickles that okay. are more spicy. But you can mm-hmm. also use like a risa, any other. You need something spicy. You need a little sauce. You there. need a yeah. lo- little sauce, but the what makes the flavor is this beautiful combination of fried eggplants and hard boiled eggs, which you can. Wrap in, I love that. Uh, yeah. For those who don't see uh, the cover right now, it's just this beautiful flatbread with uh, fried eggplant and hard-boiled egg. And I, I love the sound of that combo. Egg and eggplant sandwich. Yes. <laughs> Good for vegetarians, of course. Absolutely. There is a vegetarian mm-hmm. uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I mean, when I, when I constructed the book, I thought a lot about, you know, the way people eat today. And uh, I believe it was really important that we have a vegetarian uh chapter, even though there are vegetarian recipes throughout the book, but uh, do have a chapter that is called Meatless Mains. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, and so Bich is not part of it because it's in the Shabbat section. Okay. okay yeah, that's it. But it's basically, also. it is a meatless main, but also couscous and there is other stuff that is Perfect for yeah for vegetarians. For anyone who thought that Jewish food is all about meaty briskets, um, this is again very refreshing. we're talking about mm-hmm. Ashkenazi exactly. food because there, when, there weren't that many vegetables. But if you move south, I uh, you move to Middle East to the, the Balkans. I climate. Ever, I believe I read somewhere that in certain cultures, Jews were sometimes called vegetable eaters. They ate a lot of vegetables, perhaps because of the kosher. Uh, thing you know when when you eat vegetable based food, you have no limitations of you know fleshic milchic kosher etc etc so right. actually if you 're an observant Jew and you 're a vegetarian, you have a much easier life right. you don 't have to separate anything or wait a few hours between this and that so and I heard a lot more and more uh, young observant Jews are turning. And more more people are turning into vegetarians okay. and vegans, but uh-huh. but among observant Jews, it's it's really practical. Yeah, thing. that makes yeah. sense. That's yeah, but really also interesting. you know, it's it's if we go back for a moment to 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 meat, this is not mm-hmm. the subject of my our conversation. But uh, um, the reason sure. that um, there are so many fuss around meat, you know, in, in Jewish cla- in the kosher rules, at the, that originally. People were supposed to eat meat very, very rarely. Right. And so, as you see, there are absolutely no limitations on eating vegetables. There are no Mm. such thing as a not kosher vegetable. You can eat any vegetables anytime, or grains for that matter, or rice, or or, or bread. Uh, Meat should be consumed in moderation. If you think about the way we look at the meat today, I think it's a very modern, very relevant... that's definitely something we talk a lot about yeah. here at Heritage. <laughs> I can't imagine. But it's refreshing that. to, you know, find recipes that do exemplify that. Um, mm-hmm. And thank you so much for drawing from those traditions um, and teaching us all. Because I see a lot of, you know, I see a lot of cookbooks these days that are very heavy on the meat um, in whatever cuisine it may be, just just because that's today's mm-hmm. reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciate um, this there very, is meat, but yeah, not that much. Of course. And also because it's in very many places, uh, Jewish people were, were quite poor. Mm-hmm. So they were experts. The Jewish homemakers were experts in stretching a little bit of meat right. over a lot of, you know, 
mouth, hungry, hungry mouse. And for example, stuffed vegetables is a very, very good example. I loved of that photo of that stuffed uh, eggplants. Oh, Yum. yes. This That's is vegetarian. Syrian, a leopard Syrian, another amazing Jewish cuisine. Uh, and this is one of my favorites. It is takes three hours to cook. It uh-huh. cooks in pomegranate reduction. And in the end, the sauce syrupy and there is fresh and dried mint. This is, I think I said, it's a grand slam of, of wow. stuffed vegetables. One of my favorites, actually. If anyone needs some more sides at their Thanksgiving table, um, oh, definitely yes. check Not a side. Out. I would make it a main dish. You really? See, you okay. called it a side because what? Because it doesn't have enough meat? I I think it is a very, very festive main, and it does have meat, a little bit of it, and other great stuff. It's kind of like um, moussaka, a little bit? No, not not really. really. Plus, if you look at it, it's not just eggplants. There are three kinds of vegetables. There are uh, zucchinis and also stuffed onion skins, which is kind of my favorite. I love doing it. You know, take whole onion and you soften it and then you separate it and you just make like little torpedo shapes. It's one of the easiest actual vegetables to stuff. That does look very festive and impressive. Um, And talk a little bit about desserts. Um, I noticed you have a Hanukkah puffs mm-hmm. <laughs> honeyed hanukkah puffs bimuelos from yeah from sephardic uh, um, cuisine one of the if you go a couple of pages back mm-hmm. you know, the, in the area of of uh, uh, the puffs there is another fascinating recipe it's called mufleta okay which is moroccan it's that. actually oh uh, i had that when i was in morocco Yum. Uh, yeah and it's it's really unique because it's kind of like it's it's a pancake and it's traditionally served for a celebration called Mimuna, which comes directly after Passover. And it's like the break, the end of the Passover. And that's the celebration where you have a lot of friends and neighbors over and you have a huge table only of sweets and, and desserts. And Bufleta is the star of the table. And you actually you, you fry it on the, on, on the spot and you start with one pancake and then you add another one, and then you flip two of them, and then you add another one, and you flip three of them, until you have like a stack of four or five or six, maybe ten. That sounds fun. It's fun. I mean, I never knew how to make it, and then somebody taught me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, it was like like a game to do that. And I think it's a great great idea for a party. It does. It does look like a great um, festive stack of... Piping hot, fresh. Exactly, and you need to make them fresh. You need to make <laughs> so them. You wrote in. not to be confused with mufaleta. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, that's about all the time we have for today. But um, Jana, I noticed you're going to be back in New York for the Museum of Jewish Heritage and event on some Sunday, November twenty third. So that's two weeks from now. Yeah. Looking forward to that. And also, you're going to Montreal, Boston, Virginia, Toronto. Toronto, New Jersey, Short Hills, New Jersey, Bridgeport. Cool. Yeah. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very I'm so much. glad you could make it here to Bushwick. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It was fun. <laughs> All right. So check out Jewish Soul Food uh, just out from Shokin Books. And thanks everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>